0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Baker Hosts Ad Nauseam, a podcast series focusing on the new and trending advertising issues with an emphasis on the FTC and the NAD. I'm Amy Kottman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. We're once again joined by Amy Munch and Daniel Kaufman, two partners from Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team. Together they have decades of advertising experience and approach advertising issues from multiple perspectives. And today we have a special guest, Randy Shaheen, a partner from Baker Hostetler's advertising, marketing, and digital media team. On today's episode of Ad Nauseam, Amy, Daniel, and Randy will begin their deep dive into the FTC's recent health products compliance guidance document. This is the first in a three part series, and today they'll provide an overview of the new guidance and a discussion of a few of the seminal cases of the past two decades that play an important role in the guidance. With that, welcome to Ad Nauseam, and let's turn it over to Amy, Daniel, and Randy. Thank you
1: for joining us for Ad Nauseum. Daniel and I got pretty excited to launch this podcast and decided already we had to sex it up and add something different. So welcome to our first podcast series where we are going to be talking about those health products compliance guidelines. We're gonna focus on what's changed, what's the same and why it's important. And we just knew we could not do this justice in a single episode. So we hope you'll join us for the other two. To kick us off, we've also invited a guest. We have Randy Shaheen who is joining us. And Why is he here? Because we like Playmates in the Sandbox, but also Randy was involved in some of the FTC's cases from the early aughts that really reset the modern day understanding of what constitutes competent and reliable scientific evidence in the context of health claims. So we really thought there was nobody better to join us to set the table. But before we get to the aughts, we're going to kick it back even further and start when it all began in the 90s. Daniel? Daniel?
2: Thanks, Amy. It is great to be here. I'm really glad to have Randy joining us. So the new FTC Health Guidance is an update of their 1998 Dietary Supplement Guidance, which is a really important document. So 1998 is the last time they updated that. And I was wondering what else was going on in the world in 1998 that was important. Google was founded. Titanic swept the Oscars. Harrison Ford, People's Sexiest Man Alive. The final episode of Seinfeld and probably the most important thing from 1998, Britney releasing Baby One More Time. Amy, what was your favorite thing from 1998?
1: All right. I'll see you, Titanic, and I will raise you something about Mary. Still to this day, one of my favorite movies. It was also the seminal launch of Viagra. And I think my favorite thing, I was still in my 20s. Just barely, but I was hanging on. Randy, how about you?
3: Before I get to that, let me just say, Amy, Daniel, first, it's a pleasure. It's an honor, really, to be your your first guest. And I'm hoping, expecting, there's going to be merch for guests, coffee mug, T-shirt, something. I'll be looking for that. In terms of the 1990s, 1998, that was really the heyday of the X-Files, which was one of my favorite shows. And and a show I've been thinking a lot about recently as I look up at the sky and wonder what what it is that's flying above me and, and maybe getting shot down. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay. Huge X files fan here as well, Randy. I'm, I'm excited to hear you were a fan as well. Okay. and Before we get on with the show, I will tell you my big thing from 1998, that is when I left my old law firm and I departed to Washington, D.C. to actually work for the Federal Trade Commission. I didn't quite realize it was going to be a 23-year exercise, but it was a big deal for me. But Okay. So since 1998, the FTC has released more than 200 health cases. So it is natural that they took the 98 diet up guidance and used those 200 plus cases to modify the guidance, to add more flesh to it. And with that, let me turn it over to Randy, who's going to talk a little bit about what big picture exists in the new guides.
3: Thanks, Daniel. So the, the new guides at the outset kind of make two points. One is that they broaden the guidance from what was just guidance on dietary supplements but also update. There's a lot that's happened since 1998. And so some of what's in the new guides really reflect changes in the commission's thinking when it comes to to health claims. And there's a lot there. And as Amy said, we're going to kind of unpack this in three different podcasts. But really, it's sort of like an advertising law course refresher to, to walk through these guides. Just a few highlights. The FTC at the outset talks about its shared jurisdiction with FDA. And during COVID, actually, the two agencies teamed up quite a lot probably more than I've I've seen them do in the past. Also the FTC points out there are some differences between how the FTC approaches things and how FDA approaches things. I remember years ago amy and i had a dietary supplement case where we got permission from the ftc to use a disclaimer that the product had anything to do with preventing or treating hepatitis daniel was probably there at the ftc saying sue them sue them but then you know a few months later fda showed up at the client's factory and seized the product because they thought the disclaimer was terrible so the agencies work together but there are differences the guidance talks about interpreting claims And I think health claims in particular are susceptible to a lot of different implications with Things like pictures and symbols, the white coats, the clipboards, picture of x-rays, etc. I think come into play more often with, with health claims, typically. Substantiating claims, we'll talk more about that in a subsequent podcast, but not surprisingly, the bar is, is really high there. The guides talk about testimonials, endorsements. They're pretty much omnipresent across all sorts of claims, but obviously an issue in health claims. Traditional use for those folks who are fans of medicines or herbs that have traditional use in, in different ancient cultures. There's not a lot here to make you happy. The FTC has really kind of clamped down on that. And then Finally, it's sort of the last nail in the coffin to what used to be known as the mirror image doctrine, this notion that you could, in making claims for your product, quote from a book, and you would have First Amendment protection for that quote as long as you quoted it accurately from the book. And what the new guides say is, hey, you can publish a book and say anything you want as long as you're not selling product in connection with the book. But if a product advertiser quotes your book, they're in trouble unless they can substantiate the claim.
1: It will be very interesting to see if that gets tested. But I know we're going to spend a whole other episode talking about the science and what constitutes competent and reliable science. But the FTC kind of went out of its way to to make clear that it wasn't doing anything new in these guides. It was basically summarizing things that have gone on in its cases in the last two decades, lessons that it's... So we thought it would be helpful to set the table to talk about a couple of cases in the last 20 years that have really set the stage for these principles that we will talk about ad nauseum in our next two episodes. But first, an oldie but a goodie. Daniel, will you kick us off?
2: Yeah, this has to be one of my favorite FTC cases, the case involving the Q-ray ionized bracelet. I did a little bit of work on this case, but this is an FTC case that went to trial and went to the Seventh Circuit. So we've got this great Seventh Circuit case and decision involving the pain relief claims that were made for the Q-ray ionized bracelet. And this is one of those cases where you read it and you're like okay the court was having a lot of fun writing this decision and there's a lot to this case there were multiple studies and then i put studies in quotes demonstrating that this ionized bracelet would reduce or eliminate pain the district court goes through all the studies explaining why they are inappropriate and ill-founded lack of placebo lack of effect you know it just goes through multiple cases and again you you read through it and the studies were particularly problematic and The Seventh Circuit doesn't delve too much into the science and why the studies are bad. They incorporate all of what the uh, district court did, certainly support the analysis of the studies, but there's some really great language in the decision that I wanted to share. The Seventh Circuit calls these statements about how the product works through ionization and enhancing the flow of bioenergy and calls it blather. And in the words of the Seventh Circuit, this is my favorite quote from an FTC case, defendants might as well have said, beneficent creatures from the 17th dimension use this bracelet as a beacon to locate people who need pain relief and whisk them off to their home world every night to provide help in ways unknown to our science. So there is nothing about the product or the claims that is supported by the Seventh Circuit. Talk about the tests being relied upon as bunk, that is their word. The other really interesting thing, though, about this case is, at the end of the day, defendants rely upon the placebo effect. There is a study showing that it was as effective as the placebo, and it caused some pain relief pain relief is known to be susceptible to the placebo effect and there's a previous ftc case pantron which suggested that placebo effects always are worthless and this court takes a slightly different view the seventh circuit does appreciate the possibility that a vague claim along the lines of this bracelet will reduce your pain without the side effects of drugs could be rendered true by the placebo effect so I don't think I would ever latch on to that statement from the Seventh Circuit and rely heavily on the placebo effect. But I was always intrigued by the fact that the Seventh Circuit had this little bit of a wrinkle to the placebo effect. But really interesting case curé, it cited a fair amount in the footnotes to the new guidance document. And if you're looking for a good read, the Seventh Circuit decision is great, but the magistrate and district court decision really going through the science is a really good read.
1: Okay. I'm surrounded by two science fiction geeks wedged (laughs) in between Daniel and Randy. Okay, we had the X-Files, now we have beneficent alien beings. I am not going to talk about that, but I am going to bring some drama. The case that I'm going to flag for you is one involving Lane Labs. And this was a consent order case. So Lane Labs had entered into an agreement with the FTC that it would sin no more and it would make sure that it had competent and reliable scientific evidence to support any future claims it made about its dietary supplements. Fast forward, it was making some male enhancement drugs. It was also making some fairly routine calcium supplements. The FTC said they had violated their earlier order and that the science they had to support the claims they were making wasn't all that. Well, Lane Labs felt good about its science, so they went to court and the district court said Basically, I see, I see this science and I know the standard that is in the consent order is the classic language that you've got to have tests, analysis, research, or studies that are reliable and generally agreed upon by experts in the field. And I'm just a judge, and I'm hearing the FTC has experts that says the studies aren't good. I'm hearing Lane Labs experts tell me the studies are good, and I'm really not in a position to make sense what is reliable or not. I think this sounds like there's a reasonable basis for these claims. So the FTC lost. The FTC hates to lose. This was in the about 2008, 2009. It was right after David Vladek became Bureau Director of the FTC the consumer protection division under Obama. One of David's great acts was to ask Daniel to be his deputy director. And that meant Daniel left the ad practices and became the deputy director for a position he had for a number of years. But David is a litigator. He is a litigator's litigator. And he said that this standard, this test analysis, research and studies standard was not workable. When you're going into court seeking penalties for violating an order, it wasn't tight enough. And the FTC essentially said exactly. We wanted a standard that was really flexible, that would allow for differences in different circumstances. But Recognizing it was very difficult to enforce, David Vladek set it upon himself to set up and tighten the language around what is competent and reliable scientific evidence. And there were a handful of cases after Lane Labs with some large public companies that settled And these cases required two clinical trials of humans that were controlled in order to prove that your claims were supported. And with this, I will turn it back over to Randy to talk about what happened with that tougher, very high bar standard.
3: Thanks, Amy. I want to talk about the Palm Wonderful case that was tried administratively by the FTC and then eventually made its way into the D.C. circuit. The Palm Company was started by the Resnick family, who really are sort of marketing geniuses. They may not be advertising law geniuses, as you're about to see, but, you know, pomegranates, a household name, clementines, pistachios, they own Fiji Water. Your kitchen's probably chock full of products that, that this family has marketed. So there are really two issues in the POM case that are implicated in the current health guidance one is this notion of qualified claims in, in palm wonderful a lot of the claims for pomegranates were qualified with words like promising results initial results preliminary research and the company really tried to rely on that to say we may not have you know the gold standard clinical trials but we have some science here that supports these claims And both the commission and the D.C. Circuit said that was too little qualification. That qualification was not sufficient because it was overwhelmed by other statements, things like the product is supported by millions of dollars in scientific research. And then for those of you who remember the ads, there was also this notion of cheat death. So a little hard to say. Preliminary studies suggest you can cheat death. Kind of overwhelms the qualifier. Note that Commissioner Allhausen dissented, saying that really the commission needed consumer survey evidence to prove, to demonstrate that consumers wouldn't pick up on these qualifications, that the commission couldn't use its magic hat to just decide that all by itself. But the DC Circuit ultimately agreed with the majority of the commission and rejected Commissioner Allhausen's statement there. But ultimately, Commissioner Allhausen got the last laugh on the issue of how many clinical studies were required. As Amy said, the commission had been kind of defaulting to this idea of you need two RCTs. That was in the proposed order with POM. The D.C. Circuit, however, said two was too much. For a food particularly, it was too expensive to run two trials, One trial might be more than sufficient to support the claim, and so the D.C. Circuit cut that back to just one trial instead of two. And then that finding or that sort of holding was really kind of reconfirmed in a later case involving Roca Labs involving weight loss, again, a litigated case where the court said, again, that one study might be sufficient under under certain circumstances to support the claim.
1: Um, But you had to have one study. There had to be one randomized, controlled clinical trials.
2: One good study.
1: One good one. Okay. Well, with that, I would be remiss. This is the first podcast we've had where we've not talked about an NAD case. I would like to at least note in passing that Palm Wonderful was a case that started at the NAD and its cheap death advertisements were reviewed by the NAD and recommended to be discontinued, took a referral to the FTC and- That's all she wrote, and the rest is history.
2: I did not know it was an NAD referral. That is fascinating, Amy.
1: It was. That Mm -hmm. shows that synergy in between the NAD and the FTC. I think I'll also note that the NAD, at a recent conference, was speaking with Serena Viswanathan, who's the director of ad practices, and they were talking about this health guidance and really saying, look... The FTC announced this the end of 22. It didn't get kind of the big bang in the press that the FTC is really using these days to push its stuff out. But it is really important to read these guides I and mean, we're going to help you unpack them, but to read them start to finish. And the NAD certainly has warned and said, look, We are going to use these guides as a roadmap going forward when we look at health claim cases that come before the NAD. So I suspect we'll see lots more NAD statements on this. But with that, we have reached the end of the first in our series of Unpacking the FTC's Health Guidance. Please join us in the near future for our second episode when we talk about What exactly is required in that randomized clinical trial to make it a good trial and make it sufficient to back up your claims? We will talk about that next ad nauseum.
0: See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you, Amy, Daniel, and Randy. If you have any questions for them, their contact information is in the show notes. For more information on the latest developments in ad law, visit our Ad Attorneys Law Blog at www.adattorneyslawblog.com. That's A-D-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-S-L-A-W-B-L-O-G.com. And check out all the Ad Nauseam episodes by subscribing to Baker Hosts wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.